direct you this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He's addressing a group of people, as he often did in his ministry, and he spoke unto them, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I want to share some thoughts with you this morning that are brief, but I believe very important, and I think perhaps will highlight for us the great benefit, one of the great benefits of following the Lord Jesus in discipleship. This passage has been on my mind for a number of weeks, and if you tune into the radio program, you know that it's been a part of what we've talked about on the radio, and it also made it into our Wednesday night service this past week. But in the gospel, the Lord Jesus grants this invitation, if you will, to those who are laboring and heavy laden to come unto him as a disciple and to find rest. Now, we know that sonship is by birth. You're a son of your parent because you were born of your parent. However, to be a disciple requires study. It requires diligence. Jesus taught that unless a man take up his cross and follow Jesus every day, he cannot be his disciple. So discipleship is something that is far beyond simply being a son. It implies being a student. And you might be a good disciple. You might be a very poor disciple. There are days that I very much feel to be a disciple because I study and I pray. And there are days that life is so distracting and the world around me captivates me or draws my attention away or there's some catastrophe that's taking place and I don't study the Word and maybe I'm too distracted to follow Him the way that I should. And in those days, I very much am not the disciple that I could be. Jesus would often give this what I refer to as an invitation, if you read this word, come unto me, it's actually a command to follow after him and that he gives us rest as we follow after him. Now, as we think about this passage, obviously, as you read verses 25 through 27, those who come unto him do so because he has been revealed unto them. What did Jesus tell Peter in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Why did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ? Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ because God the Father had revealed Jesus unto Peter. If you know anything about the Christ today, that is because God has revealed his Son unto you. And this happens chiefly at the new birth when he takes away the hard and stony heart and he gives you a heart of flesh. He writes his laws upon your heart and your mind. And in that moment in your personal history... You know him intimately, and for the rest of your existence in this world and in the world to come, you know him and you experience him in your life. Jesus says in verse 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. 
Now, if I were of the perspective that God desired everyone to know him, that would confuse me. I would have no answer to explain what Jesus just said. Now, we believe in sovereign grace. We believe that all of God's children shall know him from the least to the greatest. And we believe that because that's what the Bible teaches. As a necessary consequence of God's sovereignty and salvation, it is obvious and apparent that there are some people that God does not want to reveal himself to. That's just a simple consequence of the doctrines of grace. Jesus, praying in accordance to that, in Matthew eleven twenty five, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee because thou hast hid these things. God, thank you for hiding these things from some people who he refers to as the wise and the prudent. And that doesn't mean that if you have great intelligence and you're good with your money, that God has hid these things from you. Wisdom and prudence here has reference to the wisdom of this world and to be prudent in matters of carnal affairs. In other words, those that are wise in wickedness, those who are carnal. And why does Jesus say this is good? Why should we say this is good? Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. There are a lot of people in the world today who name the name of Christ who are operating in a mentality that doesn't seem good in God's sight. They say something that is opposite of what Jesus says right here. Jesus says that it's good that these things are hid from the wise and prudent because it seemed good in God's sight. In other words, God, we bow our knees to your sovereignty. If you saw fit to hide these truths from the carnal-minded men in the world, praise be unto your name, because you saw that it was good. If it's good to you, then it is good. And the question that we always answer, who art thou, O man, who repliest against God? From Romans chapter 9, we dare not question what God in his sovereignty has seen fit to purpose. God has hid these things. Notice verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We're not merely talking about knowing cognitive facts about God, but knowing God. And no man knows God except God reveal himself to him. This is a biblical concept from Genesis all the way to the end of time. It's why we have these wonderful promises that are given to those who walk by faith in Hebrews 11. Why did they walk by faith? Because God revealed himself unto them. This is biblical. It is true. It is right. They know God because God has revealed himself unto them. And according to Hebrews chapter 8, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Every heir of promise will know him from the least to the greatest. We remind you often of the great evil in our land that is abortion. But I'm going to tell you that the abortionist scalpel cannot sever one child of God from their heavenly father because from the least to the greatest they will know him. And the knowledge of him is salvation. He imparts unto them life, and they know him. 
And so in response to that statement, Jesus issues the next, which is, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Now, is Jesus giving a general invitation to all of humanity, or does he have one specific in mind? He has someone specific in mind. Specifically, those to whom he has been revealed, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And what does he give us? He gives us rest. Now, the fact that they labor and are heavy laden speak to the spiritual condition they are in, in the bondage of false teaching. Whether we recognize it or not, false teaching is a form of enslavement. It is a form of bondage. We'll speak to that specifically in just a moment. But false teaching is very much slavery. It is bondage. Jesus said in John chapter 8, If you continue in my word, then you'll be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Improve your life quality just a little? The truth shall be an interesting thing for you to hear about on Sunday morning before going back to your life Monday through Saturday. No, the truth shall make you free. There is freedom from oppression in the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, I am meek and lowly, and ye shall find rest unto your souls to the very core of your being, a type of rest that is greater than physical rest, that penetrates even to the depth of our heart and soul and mind, a life-changing, life-altering rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is something that I wish I could tell preachers around the country. I saw an interesting meme this week. It had a, a very well-known bomb-throwing preacher as the background, and it had this quote, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and then it had a little bubble coming from his mouth and said, we're going to take care of that. And if you knew the guy and you knew some of what he taught, this would make a lot of sense to you, and maybe I can show it to you later if you're interested. But the yoke of Christ is easy, and the burden of Christ is light. This contrasts following Christ with every false religion in the world. It is a yoke, but it is an easy yoke. It is a burden, but it is a light burden. It is a reasonable service. To put it in another way, it is something that we, by God's grace, can actually do. You know, I can't save a sinner from hell to heaven because I'm not a worthy Savior, but Jesus can. What I can do is I can tell them about Him. That's what I can do. I can love Him, I can follow Him, and I can rest in His finished work. But Jesus promises to those that come unto Him that they will have rest. And this very much is a command and an invitation to those to whom He has been revealed. As we speak about rest, there's a couple of passages in mind that have been resonating in my, in my thoughts for a number of weeks from the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4 say much about this gospel rest. And as we talk about the rest today, you should understand that it very much is a gospel rest. And that isn't a phrase that is original to me. Honestly, the place that I first read that statement, a gospel rest, was Dr. John Gill's commentary. And so this isn't some weird modern PB idea. This, this is in his commentary that he wrote hundreds of years ago. 
As we speak about and think about the gospel rest, we turn to Hebrews 3 and 4. If you had to look at a place in Scripture that articulated how we receive this rest and what hinders us from enjoying this rest, Hebrews 3 and 4 are the places to go. Now, in this passage, the rest of the New Testament, and rest, I mean R-E-S-T, to rest, the resting, the refreshing that we have in the New Testament is equated to and contrasted with two types of rest in the Old Testament. Now, you'll notice the writer of Hebrews does this. He contrasts and compares and at times equates things that are true to the New Testament with things that were true to the Old Testament. And he does this to proclaim the superiority of Christ. In all things, Christ is superior. He's superior in what he taught us to even what the prophets taught us of old. He's superior to the angels. His covenant is superior to the old covenant. The rest of the New Testament is superior to the rest of the Old Testament. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua that led them into Canaan's land. Everything about Christ is superior to that which had gone before. It's amazing when people wanted to leave what they enjoyed in Christ to go back to what they had before, which is the point of Hebrews and the point of Galatians. What we have is superior in every way. Why? Because of Christ. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the rest of the New Testament is equated and contrasted with rest in the Old Testament, specifically in two ways. Number one, the rest that was found in Canaan's land. What was Canaan's land? The promised land, the land overflowing with milk and honey. You might recall the bondage and slavery that the Israelites had as they were forced to work in building in Egypt. They were forced to make brick and they were not even given straw to make their brick. They were whipped, they were beaten, they were enslaved, they were persecuted, they were oppressed. And their cry went up before God in heaven. As God delivers them from that, he takes them to Canaan's land where they would have what contrasted with slavery. They would have rest. If you looked at Canaan's land, they got to go in and live in homes they didn't build. They got to harvest from gardens they didn't plant. God gave them this land that was inhabited by the Canaanite. He drove many of them out by hornets and those that were stubborn and wouldn't leave. They were overthrown militarily by the Israelites. And so Canaan's land is contrasted with the rest that we have today. Another type of rest that is true to the Old Testament, a part of the Old Testament that we contrast with the rest of the New Testament, the rest that we find in Christ, is that of the Saturday Sabbath. And so we have the Old Testament rest of Canaan's land and the Old Testament rest of the Saturday Sabbath. And these two concepts are presented to us in Hebrews 3 and 4 in such a way that we learn that we experience a rest that is even greater in the New Testament, but also things that hinder us from entering into the rest. Now, I'm going to ask you, are you worn slap out? That's not a theological statement. Are you wore slap out? Sonny Piles once said that we have so many dysfunctional families because we go from dysfunction to that function. We need rest. God designed us to need rest. Understand he created the seven-day week before he 
made man. That was in his mind and his purpose and his heart. The Sabbath was made for man. We need rest. That's what we're learning about today. Rest for the people of God. Now let's just go through here and take a a quick census and a, a survey of these two chapters, specifically looking at the rest, and it'll be very brief. Contrary to popular opinion, I can preach a 20-minute sermon. As he uses the Israelites as an example, it's important for us to understand that he is speaking not to all men in general or to unregenerate men, but he is writing this epistle to holy men. That means that this doesn't apply to people who are outside, but people who are inside. Does that make sense? How do you know that? Chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partaker of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews is written to holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Not to unregenerates, not to non-elect, not to unsaved men. If anyone tries to apply Hebrews 3 and 4 to unsaved men, they miss the point. They missed the point. I was in a Bible study years ago with a man who was trying, a dear friend of mine who was trying to make this apply to false professors who hung around the church. And when I would ask about chapter 3 and verse 1, well, that's when the talking in circles and head scratching began because you can't escape that this is written to holy brethren. They didn't just look holy. They weren't just perceived to be holy. They were holy. They were partakers of the heavenly calling. They partook of the heavenly calling. They were born again. That's our context. Sets the context of what's to follow. Look at verse 7. As he's speaking about the faithfulness of Christ and contrasting him with Moses, look at verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, where? In the Psalms, Psalm 95. That was our scripture reading this morning. Today, if you will hear his voice... Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of the temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and I said, They do always err in their heart and have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. He uses an Old Testament example. Israel couldn't enter into the rest of Canaan's land because they're unbelief. Why? When they got to Canaan's land, they said they're giants. These men look like they could be linebackers for the Crimson Tide. We can't go in here and take these people. Look at us. We're just freed slaves. And God says, fine, you don't believe me after I've parted the Red Sea and after I've slaughtered the firstborn of Egypt, you won't enter in. And we know that in that generation, only Joshua and Caleb and those who were under 20 years of age entered in, but everyone else, they perished in the wilderness. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Now, what's he painting for us as a picture? Unbelief interrupts, it hinders the rest that God gives us. What is unbelief? What does it emanate from? According to this passage, hardness of heart. Did you know that we can harden our hearts through unbelief? Now, there was a man in the Old Testament named Pharaoh that is said of him that God hardened his heart. And we know that God gives a plague and lifts it and gives a plague and lifts it. And through those external forces, Pharaoh's wicked heart, wicked heart, was hardened. 
But you and I can harden, that is to say, desensitize our hearts through unbelief and through the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Verse 13, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Over and over, this is presented to us. They could not enter into rest because of their unbelief. Verse 19. Look at verse 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. As we begin to define the rest just momentarily, we have by the writer this caution that is issued. Let us therefore fear. Now we don't serve God by fear. We serve God by faith. Faith works by love and love casts out fear. But there is this caution that we are to take in our lives. Therefore let us fear lest a promise being left of us should uh, entering into his rest any of, a, of us should seem to come short of it. In other words, if I give place to sin and unbelief and hardness of heart, I will not enter into the rest that Scripture has in mind in this passage, which we'll define as we close today and make way for Elder Coy. Verse 3, defining the rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he saith, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now that statement from the foundation of the world doesn't have reference to election or things that God did before the world began. It has reference to the Sabbath. In the beginning of time, God created the universe in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And even though God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, Monday, or Saturday through, uh, Monday through Sunday, Monday th I want to say Monday to Friday because that's our, that's our week. Even though the works of creation were finished from the foundation of the world, the rest that God gave persisted even unto that day as the Saturday Sabbath. Likewise... We have a rest that we enter into in this covenant as the people of God. Or as he said in verse 8, for us, if Jesus, that is to say Joshua, understand that Jesus is the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua. So Yeshua becomes Jesus, Jesus becomes Jesus. If you didn't know this, Jesus and Joshua had the same Hebrew name. Why does it say Jesus instead of Joshua? Because this is translated from Greek. And it's literally translated, and the Greek word was Jesus. For if Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, they would not have afterwards have spoken of another day. Listen to me. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. God's people have a remaining rest. Now look at that word remaineth. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. What tense is it? Present, right now, there remaineth right now a rest to the people of God that is better than the rest of Joshua, that is to say Canaan's land. But just like the Sabbath, it abides even though the work that brought it to be is finished. What rest is that? It is the gospel rest that we have in our Sabbath, our Sabbath being our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is our Sabbath. And this is gospel rest. Now, therefore let us labor, therefore, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. How do you labor to enter into rest? Now, this has always been a puzzle to me because salvation is not by works and we serve by faith. So then how do we labor to enter into the rest? Well, let's think about it for just a moment. If unbelief hinders entering rest, which it does, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If unbelief hinders the rest, then the labor we engage in to receive the rest is the exercise of our God-given faith. And so we exercise our God-given faith, and in believing, we enter into the rest that Jesus gives us in the gospel. Now, as we close and make way for Brother Coy, how do we rest? I'm going to give you one verse. There's several places that you could turn to. This is in the book of Romans chapter 10, as we define what this rest is like. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. We rest from the futile, tedious, grueling attempts at establishing our own righteousness by the works that we do. It is a Sabbath through the finished work of Christ. We rest from the bondage, as Peter called it in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10, the unbearable yoke of salvation through the works of the law. Those who believe in Christ, those who believe Christ, cease from the works of the law for righteousness.